welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Hannah Fern. Can you really get to the heart of a continent of 748 million people in just 500 pages? Well, Ben Judah tried, and his latest book attempts to set out what and who we are as Europeans now, and he's joining me today. Hi, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming. So, this is a huge project. Where do you start when you're writing about a place as big and diverse as Europe? So, I'll tell you how this book really came about, in which I, at first, thought I wanted to write quite a conventional book about France, a book in which I would sort of wander around France and sort of pontificate about it and sort of occasionally meet people and, and talk to them. And after I'd written 50,000 words of this book, I decided that I hated it. I decided <laughs> it was boring, that it was sort of arrogant, like, why should anybody listen to me? And why is it sort of interesting that a British bloke wanders around? And I really came to hate the way in travel writing, especially things that I was writing, that the people you meet and that you interview always end up becoming characters or subjects. And even if you write about them really nicely, somehow if you're there as the narrator, you're sort of evaluating them. And I thought, I don't like this because this isn't really what I'm doing. I'm wandering around and I'm meeting people. I listen to them. They, I'm not narrating over them. They're telling me about their lives and how they see things differently. I go from A to B to C to D. And each place I meet somebody who's got a completely different point of view from a completely different age or walk of life or background. And I want to write a book, I decided, that gives people as close as possible that experience of being a journalist where you wander around, you meet people and you make up your own mind. How did you find these people whose stories you wanted to tell? Because what's really important about it is it reflects the bigger stories that are going on in Europe now. So, of course, we meet a young woman from Ukraine who enlists to, to fight and who is leaving her baby behind to do that. It's such an emotional story. How did you find these, these people? So I used every single possible journalistic technique that you can think of to find all these people. I found people online. I found people through friends. I found people in the street. I found people in shelters. I found people through kind of um, newspapers that I was reading through Google Translate. Every technique went into it. And the thing that they all have in common, you know, they're from really everywhere. They're from Russia to Portugal, from Ireland to Istanbul, is that they're all a bit like me, they're all storytellers and they all want you to listen to them because they think that their stories capture something about not only Europe, but the way we live now and how that's really being transformed. I think that's that really comes across that it's, it's kind of a, a moment of the way we live now that you're capturing. But did, did this selection of individuals that you chose to bring into the book, do they have a kind of a manifesto behind them? Are you trying to make a case about what Europe is by gathering these particular individuals? So for me, um, the question of uh, what is Europe is really fascinating. And I think that Europe is a wider group of countries than just the European Union and much more than just Western Europe, which Europe can often feel like if you're in Britain, that are really bound together, not by language, because most French speakers are in Africa today, not by religion, like there are more Protestants in uh, the Americas than there are in Europe, but by actually being yoked together by 
a geography that is a common destiny that we're all tied up together with and we can't really escape. And that's why Russia and uh, Turkey were always included in ideas of what Europe was going back to the 18th century when you start to see these first plans for perpetual peace. So those might not have worked out, but the idea of uh, what Europe is, is is larger for me than uh, it looks uh, often from kind of London or Paris. And that's very tied into the experience that I've had. Um, you know, my father's a journalist and uh, when I was young, I lived in Eastern Europe, in Romania and then in Yugoslavia. And I've, you know, part French on one side. So I went to uh, a French lycée. So from a very early age, I had the ability to speak French and also I was speaking Russian. And my kind of sense of Europe was really kind of shaped by those languages and where you can travel with them and what you can do with them and how Europe looks uh, looks different with them. I suppose that's uh, you capture in that the idea that what Europe is to each of us is part of our identity as Europeans. But do you think that collectively our view of what Europe is is changing because of issues like the Ukraine war? The real thing that came through to me writing this book is that Europe is being transformed by immigration. And Europe is blurring with Asia and Africa and a new Europe uh, is emerging, not only in all the major cities and all the medium cities and really from I mean, east you to deliberately west. didn't pick the capitals. We, we hear from, you know, such a range of cities. I actually hadn't thought about that, actually. Yeah, I, don't, <laughs> and, uh, I, I didn't pick the, uh, the capitals. But, but yeah, so I think Europe's kind of blurring for immigration and I wanted to capture... All of these great revolutions that I see in front of my eyes, which are changing the very fabric of our lives, that's immigration, that's climate change. Really, every field and every crop cycle in Europe is changing through climate change. It was really important for me to capture that. What were people saying to you about that, about how it's changing their lives in, in the immediate future rather than the, the next 10, 20 years, which we read about in the papers? What's happening now? I'll give you a good example. So I went to Burgundy you know, deepest French wine country. I'm sure, you know, a lot of people listening to this love a good white burgundy and will be alarmed to know that climate change means that actually every year the question of whether those vines will even exist in 50, 60 years is being asked. You can go to the churches in Burgundy and they've kept a list there of when the vendage, when the kind of grapes are harvested, uh, has been done really since the, the Middle Ages when the monks was, were still uh, doing it. And it's more or less the same around the same date until 10, 15 years ago and now it's changed by months. And you can, when you look at that and when you see how the whole kind of wine world is having to adapt to this, you get a real sense of, oh my God, like the way we live and things we take for granted as being the symbols of Europe, like wine, are actually at risk from climate change. And also you see that again in another side of Europe, in the far north of Russia, where you know, gas, that's something that really ties Europe uh, together and it causes conflicts that uh, push it apart, where people working there up in the, the sort of gas sites have seen herds of, of reindeers just dying in front of their eyes from, uh, from climate change and how it has put the seasons out of whack. So there's climate change, there's immigration, and there's technology. One of the things that was really important for me to, to get across is that the very role of, of chance in our lives is being changed by uh, social media, by dating apps, and that's profoundly changing 
in, in ways I don't think we really fully understand uh, the way we relate to each other. So the internet is one of those revolutions for me. Then there's war and how war is, you know, ripping up people's uh, lives. Americans are very fond of saying Europe is a, a museum, but uh, there's n not a war going on uh, in the United States of America or in, or, or, or in Canada, a lot, a lot of which can feel quite languid uh, uh, to me. And then there's the incredibly complicated supply chains behind literally any product you, you touch and capturing... Again, affected by war. I mean, very, very meaningfully this week with the, the dam and uh, all of the, you know, oh, yeah. the issues around crops and so on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that was really important for me to, to get across. What about the pandemic? Because you were writing this during the pandemic era and lockdown affected some of your travel plans, didn't it? Uh, well, it did. And um, it also really inspired me about how to write it. So I'd killed that first, you know, sort of failed book on, on France. And I was really thinking, oh, my God, how the hell am I going to do this book on Europe that I, I want to do? And I found myself at the beginning of the pandemic reading a lot of uh, old books. And one that really inspired me at that moment was the Decameron, where a group of people gathers in a, a castle to each tell different stories of the plague. And I thought, wow, that's so interesting. Maybe I can gather in this book a whole group of very, very different people that can answer that question for me of what is uh, Europe. And then something clicked in my head. And I'm, I'm, that there was an even more kind of ancient book that was very inspiring to me. And that is the Talmud. Talmud is maybe even a sort of collection of books or a collection of scrolls or, or, or codexes. And those are the kind of holy writings of the, of the Jewish people uh, penned by the, by the rabbis in the first few centuries of the, the common era. And the way the Talmud works is one rabbi will go one thing and another will go, no, that's completely wrong. You've got to look at it this way. And one story will be told, another story will be counted, arguments will go back and forth. And I love the Talmud and have studied with with rabbis and with kind of tutors of the Hebrew language for, for a long time. And I wanted to capture that in a book, the idea that you cannot look at something one way. We have to look at everything twice, everything three or four times. So in the book, one thing that's very important to me is that we see say, um, Berlin from two different uh, perspectives. So we get, we see Berlin from the point of view of Aboud. Like he's a Syrian refugee. He's uh, arrived there. He's driving for Amazon. He feels he's trapped in this like horrible, soft authoritarianism of the app. He can't even just go and get into the wrong lane without something buzzing at him or telling him what to do. And he's really, he... he Micromanaged he, by the tech, as you describe. Exactly. And he's really longing to actually leave and go to Dubai. He finds the place like overrun with uh, criminal gangs, a lot of which are kind of impeding on, uh, on him. And then we look at it all over again. And we look at the same place from the point of view of Haidar. He's a gay man from Syria, also a refugee, who finds joy and liberation in himself becoming... Uh, coming out and becoming a queer dancer and eventually starting to uh, do drag in the nightclubs of Berlin. So that's the kind of rabbi's principle. Look at it twice, three, four, five times. And the book's like that, trying to look at Europe through all these different perspectives.
Did you get the sense that the pandemic era, I mean, it inspired that bringing together of how we all lived through it as well. But did you get the sense that the pandemic changed Europe in a, in a kind of cohesive way that you can talk about this is what happened to Europe in the pandemic or is it just all more personal? I think that what we all went through was a moment where we all realised the way we were living was profoundly different. And it was when we found ourselves all at home and it was exposed to us, what was already true that we were living online. I think that really shocked us. I think it was a moment when people began to realise because of how the climate was in those years that what we took for granted in Europe for the seasons were no longer the way they were. Because we had we had to stop, so we noticed these things. Exactly. I and I was lucky to catch all these people in that sort of symbolic mm. castle of the, of the Decameron at a moment which they were all realising that. Your book expresses, I suppose, what it is to be European, as you said, in all these various diverse ways. But how European is Britain? I mean, obviously, we're in a situation where arguably, and it is debatable, more than half of us have stated that we'd rather not be. So what does it mean to be British and European now from what you've gathered and understood? Well, there's that Europe of the mind. And for some of us in Britain, the Europe of the mind is a year in Provence. It's, uh, you know, holidays in Barcelona. It's a French GCSE. For other- Greek taverners. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and for others, the Europe of the mind is an oppressive structure, a legal system taking away our, our freedom. And what I want people to do reading this book is to leave the Europe of the mind aside, it's being superseded by a very rapidly changing continent, and to look at the Europe we actually live in. And there are two stories in there, one of which I think is quite challenging for a uh, Remain reader, and one of which I think is quite challenging for a a, a Leave reader. And I'll start with the one that's, uh, I think, challenging for a Remain uh, reader. It's a story of Yonuch, the Romanian truck driver. He spends his life shuttling backwards and forwards across Europe on the supply lines that the European single market has created. He's worn out, he's exhausted, and he looks at this continent, this space, this trading system, and he feels it's a landscape of exploitation and moral hypocrisy. And a lot of it's about his journey to Britain and what he thinks about Britain. And at one moment, you know, he's in the midst of his work and he does think, I don't judge them for wanting to for wanting to leave and then gets back to his truck. And then the story that I think is really challenging for a leave mindset is the story of Andy and Cezanne, who are an Erasmus couple. And Erasmus, of course, is that uh, scheme that allows people to go to university or used to allow people from Britain to go to university abroad and has now been taken away from them. And like millions of others, you know, this is a couple that meets uh, on Erasmus. She's Turkish. She's from... Izmir, he's from Austria. They meet in Amsterdam and they go back to live in Istanbul, where she's uh, from, which is actually kind of quite interestingly an inversion of the way you'd expect immigration to to normally take take place. And it's about their struggle to have children and about their struggles with fertility and to found a family. And for them, you know, this Europe that we've all created in our own small ways, not just the politicians, is a zone of cross-cultural exchange and freedom. And I found meeting Jonut and spending so long talking to him and the same with Andy and Suzanne, 
you know, it's challenging to uh, those preconceived ideas uh, from Britain of what Europe is from Leave or Remain. I mean, which is important for all of us to to challenge our assumptions because um, one of the reasons we obviously ended up with such a divisive Brexit vote is because we, people were voting on assumptions, not on on facts. One thing that really struck me when I was reading and came to mind was Theresa May's comment about people being citizens of nowhere. Um, this felt to me a bit like an antidote to that because we've got citizens of Europe both localised, that they feel very connected to their own cities, their own towns, but also to this idea of, of Europe. They talk about it meaningfully in very personal ways. Was that an intentional part of your your process writing or is it just a happy accident that you, you, you can really challenge that, that statement? Um, well, I really dislike that statement. Yeah, I always, think most of us do. <laughs> I always found it so sort of icky and sort of horrible and just stupid and the kind of thing that shouldn't be said by a, by a prime minister or by anyone, uh, frankly. But what I was trying to do is I think we live in a very alienating, a very alienated uh, era where technology is pushing us further away from each other. Politics is pushing us further away from each other. We're being trapped in kind of filter bubbles and echo chambers. And it's much harder to know who who, who is everybody? Who are these people that I, you know, I've just gone on holiday to Greece and who are these like Germans on the flight next to me? Who are these people on the beach? And who is this kind of guy? Is he from Syria? I don't know. That's actually serving you in the Greek Tavern. And I wanted to uh, right, but that helped me answer that question of who are other Europeans? Because when you, you think about it, you just have a bunch of old cliches of what the what the continent is. And I wanted to, you know, write a book that was empathetic and that listened and that helped people to uh, empathise and know where they are. Did your relationship to the political decision that is Brexit as someone who... You know, you are British, but also grew up across Europe. Did it change as a result of this book? Did it confirm your feelings about the decision? Well, you know, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is that I wanted people in in Britain, which is where I'm from, to read it. And I was upset that British people were stuck in this Europe of the mind, that they were stuck in either a sort of second home cliche versus this sort of fantasy of a kind of oppressive legal system. And I wanted them to look again and to to listen and to empathise. I mean, in that sense that you had the British reader in the back of your mind, Brexit is sort of this kind of silent character, um, kind of like Hamlet's ghost, if you know what I mean, isn't well, it? Yeah, yeah. It was written for British people in mind. And I would very much hope that uh, people across Europe and uh, indeed across the world, uh, you know, get a chance to read it but I what about politicians in Westminster and Whitehall well somebody asked me the other day you know you're a kind of policy guy like, I know you as a foreign policy writer you write all these like reports of like numbers why did you go away and write a book that's got no you in it no analysis uh, in it and no policy uh, in it that's this whole arc of stories along that arc of life from uh, teenagehood to you know facing death you know what's going on Ben and it's kind of an interesting question, and I hope we've got an interesting answer, which is I actually think that looking at things in terms of policy is kind of part of the problem in the way that... Be alienating, I guess. Exactly. 
And I say that as someone who writes columns about policy every week. <laughs> so I share the same, uh, uh, I guess, separation. I don't know. Well, you know, questions of like socialism or liberalism, these big political philosophies, what they really are at their heart are moral questions about how we should live. And the book that I've written, you know, I hope asks uh, a moral question of its readers, is this the way we want to live now? And I think that politicians and policy people, hopefully, if they if they read it, um, can empathise and listen to the people in the book and remind themselves that answering those moral questions isn't just about policy, it's really about politics. Thank you very much for joining me, Ben. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is Europe by Ben Judah. It's published by Picador and you can pick up a copy in hardback from the 15th of June. We know that times are tough, but if you like this podcast and you want to support The Bunker, please consider backing us on Patreon. Just choose the amount you want to donate and help us keep making new episodes. I'm Hannah Fern and thank you for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Hannah Fern. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.